The Prevention and Early Intervention Network is pleased to bring to you our podcast series, Perspectives on Prevention. My name is Marion Quinn, and in this podcast, I'll be meeting people who have experiences to share, insights to explore, and expertise to draw on from the field of child and family services. We hope these conversations inspire, challenge, and engage anyone interested in improving outcomes for children, families, and communities. Anne Janocki is the Deputy CEO in Ankasan, a community education centre for women based in Tala. Anne and I discussed her journey as an adult learner living in Jobstown to her becoming an inspirational role model and leader in her community. I remember the first day I was as nervous as hell walking into the shanty and I was met at the door by Anne Louise Gilligan who was going to be tutoring there. It was a writing class I was doing. And she looked me in the eye, she took my hand and she said to me, you are most welcome. And I knew in that minute I was very welcome in there. That absolutely stayed with me because of the impact it had on me. That's all coming up in this episode of Perspectives on Prevention. Oh, Anne, thank you for joining us for our Perspectives on Prevention podcast series. It's lovely to chat to you. We should probably let listeners know we know each other quite well. Yeah. So we've worked together for about 14 years now and in lots of different capacities. You were white, you were my boss at one point when you were on the board of CDI. I um, was, it was great crack then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anne's professional journey is rooted in her experience as a mother herself and what it was like with two young children in a community where she really didn't have any connections. When Martina started to school, like it was because it's such a big, fast area, it was very hard to get to know people. You'd know your immediate neighbours and that would be it. And especially, you know, with a personality like mine, I wouldn't be first out at the first up dancing at the party around, you know. So I didn't really get to know many people. I kind of kept myself to myself a lot. Mm, mm. And when Martina started getting, going to school then, I'd, you know, get to see a few people at the school gates. But it wasn't until a neighbour of mine um, encouraged me in 1990, so we were here about five or six years at the time, to go up and sign up for a course with Shanti at the time. It was, you know, it was up in Britis that um, I started to get to know people then, just from in the classes. And it was a real eye-opener for me because, um, well, it took her probably a year to persuade me to go up because I kept thinking, no, I can't go up there, you know. But I knew I wanted to go back into education. I was doing nothing at the time and I'd left school very early because that was my father's, you know, he didn't have any value in education as such. It was, you know, you need to think I'm keeping you forever, get out and get a job type of attitude. Mm. So, but I knew I, you know, I had something to offer and I wanted to go back into education, but I just couldn't hack it. I did try, you know, the likes of the VCC or, or the... VC, whatever it was at the time, mm. you know, kind of night classes and things like that. But I just couldn't stick them. You know, as soon as something had happened, I'd be gone. I didn't have much motivation. I certainly had no confidence in myself. So, you're, you know, your dad was like, you know, no need for any more education, get out and earn a living. And you lacked confidence 
didn't you said you didn't have a lot of motivation and yet you knew you had something to give and you wanted to kind of get an education so where did that come from well I think the main driver for me well I knew you know I definitely knew I had something to give you know um I but I think the main motivation would have been my two children because I you know I really thought I'd love them to go to you know go on in education and get a good um, you know, maybe go to college, certainly finish secondary school and do their leave insert. Um, so that was the, that was probably my main driver, my main motivation was more for them than myself. Okay. And, you know, I used, when Martina was quite young and she was just preschool age, I used to spend a lot of time, you know, doing little puzzles with her, doing, you know, all that kind of little, you know, books, bring the snail home, you know, this sort of thing. And when she went to school, when she wasn't long in school and the teacher said to me, God, you must spend a lot of time at home with her doing activities because she can see it in her. And that that kind of, you know, switched on a light bulb for me and saying, you know, that, you know, the fact that she could see that in the school, the mm. teacher could. I think that was the start of getting me interested in early years education. I knew I wasn't really that interested in childcare, just, you know, sitting down kind of mind and children. It was more education. But it wasn't like being a teacher, you know, mm. in school. So it was more what happens to child before then, before okay. they go to school. And okay. I think it was because of that, that, that kind of started it off saying, yeah. you know, it was fun activities. Martina loved them. She'd eat mm. them up, you know. Mm. And I was amazed that I said, oh, God, they can see that in school. Mm, you know, so yeah. I think that it was, was kind of a real start. Difference. Yeah. yeah. If you think back to the other parents who were at the school gates when you were bringing your kids to primary school and you were, you know, spending that time and thinking about how can I improve my education so that my kids have got a better opportunity. Do you think, would you have been unusual in that? No. Well, you know, things were difficult in Jobstown. Like you wouldn't let your children go up to the shops on their own, you know, when they were um, an age where maybe in another area you would and there was a lot a lot going on like I, I was only talking the other day about when Martina was really small and Dara was only a baby so it was in the 80s and or maybe very early 90s and the school sent out a warning that there was people around giving sweets out there were actually drugs and to be very careful and I remember Martina having nightmares and I said you know you won't take those sweets you know you know not to mm -hmm. take sweets off and she said no it's not me it's Dara he might he's only a toddler you know oh, so things, were, yeah. Yeah, things were quite harsh at the time and mm. I you know I do say even if you're ha you have a nice little happy home going on inside your own home as much as you can. You were still living in this kind of, you know, a lot going on in the community. And I think for a lot of parents, it was doing their best to get them through, to stay on maybe to do their junior cert at that time. And that mm. was a big um, achievement. Or maybe doing applied leaving. And I remember being very struck when Dara was, I don't know, eight or nine. And a lot of parents were talking about no, sorry, he was old, he must have been older. But a lot of parents were talking about doing um getting them into secondary school and it was going to be a big, you know, a huge struggle where you wouldn't see that nowadays. But then when they were when they were a bit older, talking about getting them to do their applied leave and if they could stay on and do the applied leave. And I remember thinking, these children had the same level of intelligence in school. Like the, there wasn't a huge difference between them. And there was no doubt that Darrell was doing his leaving cert. Do you know what I mean? And mm. I thought, 
it's a lot to do with attitude as well around, mm. you know, like from the time the two of them were young, we always spoke about when they were, when they go to college. And, you know, to be honest, I hadn't a clue how they were going to get to college. You know, there was a bit of me thinking, you know, we were both unemployed at this stage. And I was saying, you know, it's going to be hard, but they're going to go to college, you know. Mm. So, you know, I think it was putting the belief into them, but certainly having the yeah. attitude that this, you know, they're entitled to it and it should happen. Mm. You know, Dara was selected at one time to go to um, the programme over in DCU for primary school children, uh, Centre for Talented Youth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were saying, OK, the bus fare is this amount. They have to get a bus every Saturday. They have to pay 10 weeks in advance. They have to pay for the course. So it was no, you know, no gift that he was selected that he'd be able for it. It was getting them there. And I remember Dar Martin went up to the school and said, if he was in trouble all the time, he'd get support to go to this mm. programme. But because mm. he isn't, you know, we don't have that kind of money. So the school agreed and put the bus on for the few children that were picked. And that okay. made a difference to us, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That enabled it. So the expectations is definitely, and I mean, we, we, we know that, don't we, about sort of parental aspirations for their children yeah. are, are really important and in the way you describe you know that you talked about going to college and finishing education and all those things that it just becomes part of what children expect of themselves if it's sort of it's in the ether kind of isn't it yeah um, going back to myself when I was a teenager like there was no talk my brother actually had to fight to go to do his leaving cert, to stay on in school to do his leaving cert. He's the only one of us that was seven that did that. So my expectations was no way was I going on to college or going on to stay on in school. I was leaving and getting a job and that's what I did in a mm. sewing factory as mm. soon as I could. And actually I left earlier than I should have and I was brought back to school by a school inspector. But the day I could leave legally, I was out there. So it wasn't mm. until I was, you know, a young adult that I decided, no, I'd like to have a bit mm. more education. Mm. Yeah. So let's pick up a, a, the shanty. So after a year of being cajoled, yeah. um, and you have tried other things. You said you went to the VEC, what is now the ETB, and you yeah. went to night classes and it didn't work for you. So you finally get yourself to the shanty, which was run by Catherine Zapone and Anne Louise Gilligan, and it was the precursor to Ankasan. And as you say, it's in British at their home. And I was there many, many years ago. It was kind of like an outbuilding behind the house yeah. that they converted. So, so, so tell us about that and what, what, what was different about that experience? Well, I kind of just went to, you know, to get my neighbour off my back, you know, to say, oh, my God, like she's, she doesn't let up. So I went. But I remember the day I was. So, you know, the way some things stay with you. And, you know, I've... Because they've stayed with me, I've implemented them, I suppose, in the way I work. But I remember the first day I was as nervous as hell walking into the shanty. And I was met at the door by Anne Louise Gilligan, who was going to be tutoring there. It was a writing class I was doing. And she looked me in the eye. She shook. She took my hand and she said to me, you are most welcome. And I knew in that minute I was very welcome in there. That absolutely stayed with me because of the impact it had on me. So it certainly helped me going in and it helped me stay. Now, the usual happened to me, you know, as soon as there was, you know, attention put on me or any kind of pressure, I was out there like, but the difference was we they had what you call, um, what we called at the time, education facilitators. So they were like 
assistant tutors, but it was just another person in the class. They took the names down like a role kind of and would support people um, if they needed any kind of additional support to stay in the class. Um, so like as soon as the going got tough, it was like, OK, I can't go back there. So if my son sneezed on the way up to the crash. Oh, that's it. He has no home. You have to bring him home. I can't go. Any excuse not to go, you know. When I walked in and seen the layout, it was lovely sofas and we were sitting in like a circle. I Everyone loved that. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I've nowhere to hide, you know. Yeah. But anyway, what happened to me was the education facilitators followed me up. Or Anne Louise would give give a call and um, saying, God, we really missed you. Will you be back next week? And that made a difference to me. I was saying, mm. God, yeah, I think I'll go back by the end of the conversation. I go mm. back. So that did happen to me a few times now, I have to say. We were probably mm. fed up saying, where is your woman going again? But anyway, they did bring me back. So the first class was a writing class. And I remember Anne Louise got us to write a letter. She said, any letter. And my washing machine had just happened to break down and it was quite difficult without a washing machine which is another lesson I've learned when supporting parents that your washing machine breaking down can make a huge have a huge impact on you yeah. so anyway I was writing to the company to complain about that was my letter and I remember she talked to us all individually and she said you've no problem writing a letter and I was chuffed that was another thing wow I can write a letter it was amazing the small things that make mm. a difference to mm. build up your confidence mm. so I just went from there doing a huge amount of courses and eventually I knew I wanted to do more on family support I was really interested in that area and at this stage I did have a diploma in Montessori education because again it was early years education more so than you know just kind of sitting minding children I knew it was there was a lot more to it than that. So um, I was looking for something in, you know, a higher education program to do. And I came across the Child and Family Research Centre in Galway and seeing the um, MA they were offering was uh, Family Support Studies. So the more I read about that, I was really interested in it. And so I went for that, applied and had to do an interview to get a place. And I was delighted when I got the place. I ended up having having my master's after a couple of years. So that was mm. really a good journey for me. Mm, fantastic. And and I remember um, in being in the Helix for Anne Louise's uh, service, her funeral memorial service. So Catherine Zappone's wife when she died. And, you know, the Helix, a big venue, absolutely packed to the rafters in the front row, Leo Vracker, the Taoiseach, I'm pretty sure Michael D. Higgins was there, wasn't yeah, he? he was. yeah, and there he were at least half a dozen other ministers and then and then people from every walk of life. And um, I was way up at the back somewhere, you know, crammed between people uh, in the times when we didn't have to socially distance. And and you, um, you, you got up and you told that story about Anne Louise and how she welcomed you and how important that was and how affirming she was and how that was all part of what kind of you know motivated you and kept you going and and you told your journey um and and ended by telling the audience about your masters and I remember there was this huge gasp 
in the audience because you know you talked about you know struggling as a parent and two young children or whatever and then this really hard journey and and you know of, I mean you'd been asked to tell that story because it's a really inspiring one what did that feel like to tell your story to to that audience well I was very nervous obviously you know it was good with the re reaction you know I remember the reaction and I thought yeah, people were, you know, I, I think people were inspired by it. And, and I was hoping, I think, that's, well, it was all about Anne Louise on the day, but I remember thinking afterwards and I, I was thinking, it'd be great if people supported, you know, organisations to, you know, to support more of that. Because, you know, if you if you had met me in the early 80s, you would have said, I wouldn't have envisioned, and I don't think many people did, that someday I would have a master's. I, that certainly wasn't on my radar then. You know, I was lucky to be able to write that letter and to, you know, learn and to type. It was, I remember doing a piece of work for a whole afternoon and then lost it on the computer. I was learning to type. And, you know, so, but it was amazing once you put support, well, offer support to people and that when they're able to take it, they do it themselves. You know, mm -hmm. I firmly believe that. It's not, you know, no one did that for me. I know now at this stage, I got a lot of opportunities, but I took them. I did mm -hmm. it. Mm, you know, and I think that's, you know, the way we need to, and, and you know, seeing some people believing in it, we said, well, she actually thinks I could do it, you know, it's like I was supported to do the Montessori diploma, it was £1,000, I remember, it's huge money, and I was supported by the organisation to do that, but I didn't want that as a handout, and what the management team agreed at the time was that I would work back the hours, so I do some admin work and keep a little notebook and I was paid five pound an hour and every five pound I earned I wrote in my notebook till I paid back that thousand euro because I didn't want I didn't want charity but I certainly needed help and support and I needed encouragement from getting that support being able to take what was offered to me and and running with it I do a lot so I remember thinking in the helix yeah there's, there's loads of people like me you know I'm not I'm not unusual I'm not you know one of a kind around there's there's loads of people with me and I've seen that over the years walking in yeah. here. You yeah. know, which is, I think you have to start with the right attitude towards people and, you know, belief in people. But I think it's like, you know, being able to show them all this, offer them support, maybe give them opportunities and support them in a way to say, yeah, you can do that. You know, mm -hmm. whether you're very welcome at the door or it's, you know, you're well able to write a letter. Mm -hmm. Those little things mean a lot to people. And then, so, so you said that some of the things simple but really impactful that Anne-Louise kind of did when she first met you, like the handshake, telling you you're well, you're very welcome, letting you know it's meant. And you said that you've incorporated some of those things in how you work. So what, what kinds of things do you do because they've meant something to you as a, as a participant? Well, I think when, you know, when you first meet people, when parents first come to us, one of my things here is that we're all key workers to parents that we're all, uh, we're all family support workers in a way, that we're not just working with the child in isolation, we're working with their parents. And I've certainly seen that over the years, where it's up to us to build a really good, a strong relationship as much as we can with a parent and to try to get them to trust us in a way. And, as, you know, you need to, 
earn that trust. You know, it just doesn't happen. But once you get in there and you can build that relationship with a parent, you know you're going to work better with the child or you're going to get better results for the child. And I've seen that over and over. There has been families or parents where we, we haven't managed that as well as we'd like to. And probably the outcome at the end of the year of the child being with us, or maybe just a few months because they might leave, you know, after a few months. You know, you don't get as much as outcome. But once you can do that, I think, with the parent, and it is little steps, and it's the staff in the morning giving them a proper welcome, you know, talking to them about their child, not coming across as if they're the experts and they know everything. The parents mm. are the experts with their children, and we mm. need, and that's why we need that good trust with them, because they can tell us things that we need to know that supports us to work even more with the children. So mm. I think. A lot of it is about attitude, Marion. It's about attitude and how you work with people. And the small things can make a huge difference to people. Could you just say something about sort of pre-COVID? Because I think things have changed, obviously, since COVID. But just prior to COVID hitting, what were the things that you thought were going well in the community? And what were the things that you were worried about? Um, I think we have a lot of um, services now in Jokestown. Like, I, you know, I talked about when we moved in first, it was, there was nothing. Um, and as part of, you know, I was chairperson of community council for a long time and we got a lot of um, good things in the community and they stayed. So that's good. But I still think we have a lot of families struggling. I remember the time, Marion, we were doing um, research for CDI, the first research, how are our kids? And I was very struck by, you go into one house and it'd be like a little palace. Parents are getting on really well. The children are getting on really well. There was a few issues, but not really many. And then I think we'd count six houses and go into the next one, whatever way that was done. And you'd go into a house then and, I, you know, the, the poverty, the issues that were affecting the family, so it's it's always been a very mixed community. So that's gone back to, you know, the start of CBI. And I don't think much has changed in that way for some families. And they're the hardest to reach families. And, you know, we really, I think we really need to put a lot more, all of us working in services, and really a lot more into how can we reach those families that are struggling the most. Because I always think of myself, you know, taking a year for me to go up there and then, running as quick as I could to get out after, you know, a few weeks and having to be kind of encouraged back. And what would that look like, Anne, if we, what strategies have worked for you or what strategies do you think we should all try to use more that can help us to engage with those really difficult to, you know, the families that really struggle to, to, to engage with services? Yeah, I think what, what, what can work well here is a partnership approach. Like, we, when we have a referral meeting, for example, in June, a number of our places are kept for families that are really struggling the most. And we, we do it by referral system. So we have our form and we, we, we send them out now. We've sent them out now at this time of the year. So we send them to public health nurses, social workers, family support workers, the metal team are great in referring people to us. So I think that's that's one way where we can all work together. And I know CDI does a lot of work in that, you know, bringing us together for networking and all that. And I think that's the best way that if it's joint approach, mm. that we're, we're all looking out for families. We know what's going on. Like back to the directory that you get yourselves to, that we can, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, this this family needs a bit more support than maybe what we can give here. So 
get in touch with maybe with the family centre next door with Catch It in there or Bernardo's, mm -hmm. James Parker. So when you, you get to know people on an individual basis in mm -hmm. services, you can pick up the phone and say, look, I have this family maybe that needs more than we can offer them. And the metal mm -hmm. program is great for that. So yeah. I think that's one way that it's, you know, we don't see that we're all working in isolation. We can't because families have a lot of complex needs. Um, and needs need a lot of support. So I think the more we can do that, the better for the family at the end of the day, for the mm -hmm. child. And what about COVID then, Anne? What's changed, do you think, for the families that you work with and the children since the pandemic has struck? I think attendance at things certainly went down because obviously even services that were open that they could attend, they they didn't. And I think that can become a little bit of a habit maybe for some families that it's harder to get back out then. It took mm. a, maybe it took a while in the beginning to engage with them. And then when there's a whole knockback, it, they have to do all that again. It's not just yeah. to get up in the morning and put your coat on and off I go. So we can see the effects of that. Huge mental health issues going on now with people. You know, that was always a thing, I think, in our communities, a lot of mental health issues. But I think that's definitely got worse now uh, over the COVID period and then people really struggled with their children at home you know if you had two or three children and you happen to have you're lucky enough to have one laptop do you know that probably wasn't enough in some families or some houses and then having to homeschool you know children at home and maybe you didn't have a great level of education yourself and that was a struggle for people so I think we're going to see the effects of COVID for a while to come and you know trying to get people to get children back up to where they were or getting family supported back up to maybe where they were able to to talk you know and to tell people what was going on for them and I know definitely a lot of domestic violence we we have some people where they were coming to our counselling services for example and they're able to get up here talk to a counsellor in the room but that became very difficult for them because the problem was in the home and mm. some people were having their counselling sessions sitting in their cars talking mm. to our counsellors mm. so I think that probably became you know, a bit worse for people. Mm -hmm. And then we have our home visiting service where we had home visitor going in for to parents with children up to the age of three. And all those visits had to stop because of COVID. And I would, you know, they kept them up on Zoom, but it's definitely not the same. You know, yeah. we yeah. go in and sit, sit in the sitting room with a family and you can actually see what's going on with the child. You know, mm -hmm. that doesn't, and you can give early early kind of support you see something starting with the child maybe you can make a suggestion of what they might need to go and get something checked out have a chat with, chat with the public health nurse or even just give them tips for child development but i mm. think we're going to see a lot of a lot of impact when families are back out into schools properly and yeah. or into services properly you know yeah so Anne, a couple of last things before we wrap up you live in the community that you work in and you know, you're overseeing a, a range of services. A lot of them are, you know, anybody can come in and, and access them universally available to anybody, but some of them are more targeted. So, I mean, how, what's that like being someone who lives in the community, potentially being a neighbour of someone who's using the services, but also, you know, having a senior management role over, over the service? What are the kind of pros and cons of being from the community? A lot of the time it is tough, but I'd say mostly it's it's great being able to make a difference. I think you know things in a different way. 
you know, you know them at a deeper level. And and uh, I think my resilience is excellent because of my childhood that I have. So I do think, I, I you know, I think as workers, we need to keep our own resilience up, especially when you live in the community and see what's going around you. But it gives you a different way of knowing and a different a deeper way of knowing I think mm. um, because you can relate to it is that is that why I think, yeah I think it's because I can relate to it I'm you know I've, I've known a lot of people you know from the time they were young I, I'd know probably I'd have maybe some kind of information that maybe could support me to support them a bit more so yeah I think this, there is benefits to living in the community but there are certainly disadvantages as well sometimes it's hard to switch off but you you, you kind of have to be a bit firm with yourself and I you know and say like for example if I take a week off it really only benefits me if I go away for the week because otherwise I feel like I'm still in work to be honest mm -hmm. but there are advantages and there's just disadvantages to living in the community but I remember when we made the decision to stay in Jobstown it was like I actually don't want to leave here now you know when we moved in it was like right six months and we're out here oh my god we couldn't stand it but we got so involved with the community uh, as from a community development point of view and I think that's a lot what education did for me as well like you got a GP in the area we got the chemist in the area we set up childcare centre up the road you know we we'd a hand in a lot of pies and and because of that then you know you see the benefits to fat and you because you know what people need and you kind of know what families need I'm not saying you only know that because you live in the community obviously mm. that's not true either but you know and playing a part in getting those together mm. you know I got to the stage where I said I'd never leave West Allen now I'd never leave Jobstown mm. I love it. I love the people that live here. You see mo so much resilience and strength in people. Um, mm. It's just amazing what people can do. And, you know, everyone at the end of the day wants the same for their children and their families. Some just struggle a lot more. And I think often that's what leads to mental health issues. If, you know, that they, they want so much for their own family and their own children and they see some families around them that are getting on really well, that that can affect people, but it can also affect them in a positive way. Yeah. I often observed this when I was in classes in, in the shanty in the early days and in Ankasan, that there's such a mix of people, there's such a mix of people in the community, but there was such a mix of people in the class. And you'd see, God, they're getting on ground, you know, it would be a way of motivating you a bit or you'd hear someone that had the same difficulty as you and you could chat to them that's a benefit as well to be able to 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 see that and to do that and it does can motivate families as well to aim that little bit higher it's possible yeah. to do something more or be yeah. something more so and um, just I mean, the, the, this podcast series is about perspectives on prevention. I mean, you've you've touched on prevention in lots of ways. Primarily, I think we've talked about parents and how how we can support parents to be, you know, as as good a parent as they can be. Is, is there any other? Is there anything else in terms of sort of preventing problems from happening or, or from minimising them? Is there anything else that you kind of have learned along the way or that you really believe is the kind of, you know, one of the things we have to deliver on in order for children to, to develop and achieve? I, I suppose what's coming to mind now, because I've been thinking about this lately, is 
our own knowledge and you know so for early year educators you know it's one of the examples I give is that they have to have it's one thing having a good attitude and having building up trust with a family as well but we really have to have the knowledge as well around child development around whatever we need it's like having a really good teacher just thinking for the early early year educators you know they need it's like our home visitor needs to know what they're doing you know, to be able to continue to upskill themselves in order to support people and support children. You know, I absolutely know if you make a good in good impact in the early years, it just it stays with children. Even mm-hmm. if it's, you know, for one parent, it might be turning around their their mindset around how often that their child gets into school every single day. That could be a huge outcome for one family. Another family, it could be getting their you know, it could be steps higher than that, you know, getting their child mm. to school or getting their child into clubs or getting, you know, additional need, you know, additional need support. I mm. mean, we do need obviously more services, you know, around additional needs and things like that. But I think keeping ourselves as up to date and, you know, well educated ourselves around um, issues involving families and parents is, is uh, a key. huge need as well. Yeah, it's key. Okay. Yeah. And thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights as well as personal stories. I have no doubt that your reflections have inspired lots of us to think about how we engage with parents. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Prevention, the podcast series created by the Prevention and Early Intervention Network. We hope these conversations inspire, affirm and excite you. To find out more, check out our website at www.peein.ie.